This is Africa Digest. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Looking at your latest news this hour, I'm Onelin Sinzi. Somalia and Kenya have agreed to normalize ties following months of tension over a maritime border dispute. In talks mediated by Egypt's President Abdel Fattah Sisi, the Kenyan and Somali heads of state agreed to restore relations to previous status and take diplomatic steps to build confidence between the two governments. Kenya and Somalia have been at loggerheads over a maritime and territorial dispute that is currently before the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Since February this year, when Somalia accused Kenya of auctioning oil and gas fields, in the disputed maritime area, relations between the two countries have gone cold. Cameroonians have expressed very little optimism that the forthcoming national dialogue will resolve the decade-long Anglophone crisis. On September 30, the government will start hosting a national dialogue on the future of the Anglophone territories, where separatist violence and a government crackdown have caused thousands of lives and forced hundreds of thousands to flee. The following day, October 1st, marks the second anniversary of the spiral towards conflict declaration of the self-described Republic of Amazonia for Cameroon's English-speaking minority. The militants have staged what they call deadly city protests every Monday, aimed at bringing the English-speaking regions to a standstill. South Africa's ruling ANC president, Sir Ramaphosa, has challenged teachers' union Satu to act firmly against those who perpetrate sexual relations between educators and learners in South Africa. He says this must be addressed as soon as possible as it hampers efforts to improve the quality of education in the country. Addressing about 1,500 delegates attending the 9th Sati National Congress at Nazareth, Johannesburg, Ramaphosa said the law must also take its course in ensuring that those who continue to sexually assault learners in schools are brought to book. There are too many reports, though, of sexual relations between educators and learners. And you know this. This abhorrent behavior must be decisively addressed and it must be stopped. As educators, your job 
is that of a parent to the children who come to your schools. You are not supposed to be the lovers of your children who come to the schools. Research by more than a hundred scientists from around the world has shown that sea levels are rising faster than predicted as ice in Greenland and Antarctica melt at an unprecedented rate. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says the number of floods and storms will increase and hundreds of millions of people could be forced to leave their homes by the end of the century. One of the report's authors, Hans Otto Potner, says that it is too late to reverse some of these changes. There are large uncertainties about tipping points that may still be ahead of us. But for some systems, especially biological systems in the oceans, we have already evidence that the tipping point has been passed. Just think about the warm water corals and the coral reefs, which are already in decline and are surpassing their tolerance threshold with every exposure to a marine heat wave. And lastly, the authorities in northwest Italy have evacuated a number of homes amid fear that a glacier on the Mont Blanc could be about to collapse. The glacier has been closely monitored since 2013 in an attempt to establish the frequency with which ice is melting. But authorities warn that there is no alert system in place, the BBC's James Reynolds. The mayor of the town of Courmayeur has issued an order limiting traffic and he's cleared a series of homes. Officials will set up a radar in order to monitor the glacier's movement in real time. They stress that taking precautions doesn't mean that a dramatic collapse is necessarily about to happen. Channel African News, I am Onelinsinzi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The time is 17.06 Central African time. If you are just joining us, this is Channel Africa. Always giving you news from an African perspective. We are a third, well, halfway through the week, actually. Uh, It is Wednesday today, and we do hope that you are enjoying it so far. Just a couple of uh, top stories that we're going to be covering during this hour. Ghanaian authorities arrest three suspects and seize explosives, as well as other weapons of an alleged coup plot. And the Heart and Stroke Foundation South Africa continues to underscore the importance of living a healthy lifestyle to prevent the onset of heart disease. In economics, Zambia's energy regulator hikes the pump price of fuel, raising concerns of negative economic performance. And lastly, in sport, European football's governing body announces that St. Petersburg, Munich and Wembley Stadium in London will still host the three Champions League finals from 2021. A very big thank you to Onelin Sinsi for giving us the news at 1700 hours Central African time. But let's start off in Ghana right now, where Ghanaian authorities have arrested three suspects and seized explosives as well as other weapons over an alleged coup plot. In a statement, Ghana's government said the plot was targeting the presidency, had the ultimate aim of destabilizing the country. The arrests of the suspects come a year ahead of the presidential elections in the West African country, with incumbent Nana Akufo-Addo expected to seek another term. For nearly three decades, Ghana has been viewed as a stable democracy in a region characterized by insecurity. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Adib Sani, Ghana's foreign policy and security analyst, and he says the reports of the alleged coup came as a surprise. 
I was extremely surprised and disappointed at the same time in the statement issued by the Ministry of Information. Because when you take a closer look at our regime in Ghana, we have a fairly robust democracy. Indeed, one of the very best in Africa. There are strong institutions to safeguard against coups. We have a very solid civil society organizational environment in Ghana. We have the rule of law, freedom of expression, etc. So it is safe to say at this very moment that we are literally speaking coup-proof. There's absolutely no way anyone can succeed with a coup in Ghana. And I have particularly studied the documents released by the Ministry of Information. And the statement is disingenuous to the people of Ghana and the very values that we represent as a people. Because from my perspective and from my analysis of the current situation on the ground, there's absolutely no way a coup can be successful. And hence, this issue should not be given the seriousness it doesn't deserve. Now, you're talking about... The problem of small arms in the country, what should be done then to better understand both the demand side and even more importantly, the supply side and then to improve the legislation on small arms in the country? Well, we have a a small arms commission in Ghana that is constitutionally uh, mandated, advise government on policy matters relating to small arms and light weapons. Unfortunately, due to perhaps resource constraints, they have not really been able to live up to uh, their mandate. The crux of the matter has got to do with an influx of uh, these small arms and light weapons from other areas within, especially the West African uh, sub-region. Um, it is unfortunate to note that we have porous border crossings in Ghana. We have persons able to come in and go out of the country without being subjected to any form of security checks. And you find these highly sophisticated network of individuals who are able to engage in these weapons trafficking, able to bring in these weapons without being noticed by the security agencies. Um, Secondly, we have a major problem with the local gun manufacturing industry in Ghana. Unfortunately, not much attention has been given to it. We have an Arms and Ammunition Act in the country that clearly states the IGP is supposed to have a central register of all weapons in the country. However, the IGP is unable to do that because most of these weapons are illegal weapons and are produced under the radar. So I think going forward, what we have to do is to revise the, the guidelines, the policies to regularize the activities of these local gun manufacturing manufacturers. By so doing, we should be able to regulate their activities, get them to imprint serial numbers on these guns they, they produce, and also get them to sell the guns to only persons who have gone through the processes before obtaining weapons. When we do that, I'm pretty sure that the IGP would be able to live up to his mandate. The issue comes at a time when the country is facing some security challenges, including kidnappings, isn't it? Are you one of those that believe that the government should stop the idea of employing party foot soldiers into sensitive government security agencies such as the Criminal Investigation Department of Police? I have 
spoken about this for years on end, and um, it is an issue peculiar to not just the party in power, but it cuts across the political divide. Um, I've always been of the opinion that if this trend continues, terrorist organizations are highly likely to infiltrate our security agencies, because what happens is once a party is in power, they employ the services of their party foot soldiers and other activists into the security agencies. And when another party comes to power, they ask them all to go home without following due process and bring in their own. So those you ask to go home, those you put back in the street, they become very frustrated. And if care is not taken, they become belligerent towards the state. And that is where terrorist organizations can take advantage of those grievances to employ them, okay, to, to get them to believe that we are the real family and the establishment is against you. And that is very dangerous. Now, what impact do you think this alleged coup plot could have on the country's political landscape as well as Ghana's international image? Well, it doesn't speak well of the country because it has a tendency to downgrade our security profile. Like I indicated earlier, Ghana has a fairly robust uh, democracy. A lot of business leaders always choose Ghana as their uh, potential uh, investment ground because of the stability we've enjoyed over the years. So when issues of this nature come up, a lot of potential investors might have a rethink because after all, they thought we were coup proof. So if some persons are able to attempt it, means they would have to rethink, they would have to be careful with the, the kind of business they do in their country so that they don't lose uh, their investment. It is not good enough uh, um, for, for tourism also in the country. It is not uh, good enough for the general business environment in Ghana. And that's Adib Sani, Ghana's foreign policy and security expert on the line from the capital, Accra, talking to Kumbelo Munjalele. The matter can now be put to rest. It's been decided Zimbabwe's late former president, Robert Mugabe, would be buried at the National Heroes Acre Monument in about 30 days once a mausoleum was built for him. However, Mugabe's burial has been a point of dispute between his family, who wanted to bury him at his burial homestead, Zvimba, and the government, which pushed for the body to rest at a national monument in the capital. He died during a medical trip to Singapore, aged 95, leaving Zimbabweans torn over the legacy of a man who is still, uh, who's some still lauded uh, for his role as a colonial era liberation hero. Benjamin Mushatama spoke to Simon Muchemwa, Channel Africa's correspondent in Harare, Zimbabwe. The decision, yes, has already been made. Uh, the former president is going to be buried at the hero's acre. Unfortunately, he is going to be buried in a different fashion than the traditional way we have known as Africans. And um, uh, now the issue is when, because um, the uh, uh, the grave that they have chosen is yet to be built. We understand that the material is also being imported from outside the country. The cost of building and even the importation of the material is going to reach about a million US dollars. And uh, many people here are complaining that uh, the amount of money that is going to be used on the dead is uh, already surpassing the expectation of Zimbabweans. We are in a country whereby the, uh, foreign currency is a problem, and you find that uh, even um, uh, extravagant spending is not expected. We don't have water, we don't have electricity, we have no medicines in hospitals. 
if you just talk of maybe the, the, the food that has been consumed at Robert Mugabe's funeral so far, we're also talking of millions of US dollars. You talk of the funeral parlor, there was also a, a conflict between two funeral parlors, Nyarat home and then down. Uh, uh, All these had something to do with the death of Robert Mugabe, uh, some doing flowers and so forth. They are all going to be paid from the government coffers. It's a lot of money that has been forked out. But anyway, that's what they wanted as a government, maybe to respect uh, the dead in the manner that they felt it was honorable. But now when it comes to the issue of expenses, it's something that people never expected and are now complaining. And what is that doing in terms of, uh, you know, the continued debate, um, Simon, around the legacy that uh, Robert Mugabe is leaving behind? I know that he's been lauded in South Africa by our statesmen and also our politicians this side. I don't know if the narrative is different in your country. In Zimbabwe at the moment, it's a bit of um, divided opinion on who Robert Mugabe was because uh, he had two extreme lives. He was one, on one hand, a very good person, a liberator, uh, a statesman, and someone who was always there standing for the African rights, especially those of the women, the children, and um, ownership of land. But on the other hand, the fact that he, on the issue of human rights abuses, he was also on the extremes. What's the way forward from here? What can we expect in the next few days? I'm sure, as you said, that there are some signs that uh, preparation is underway in Harare. The thing that uh, we now know is uh, definitely is that the government from now onwards has nothing to do with the burial of Robert Mugabe. Yes, the burial is going to be done at the Hero's Acre. It's a national place. The government has got uh, ownership of that place. But you find that uh, from what we're hearing from the Secretary of Information, Nick Mangwana, a few days ago, he said that the government has stopped money, which means that anything else to be done at the Heroes Acre during the burial or arrangement and so forth, that is just going to be done between the government and the family, and it's not going to be a public issue. So I also understand some people asking questions whether... Uh, dignitaries like other presidents in Africa or deputies or former presidents are also going to witness the burial. Uh, from what the government has been saying, they are saying that uh, they are coming on the day of uh, the service that was done at the National Sports Stadium. Uh, that that was all. Uh, you find that they all went back, the, the body viewing and the burial is going to be private. And that is Channel Africa correspondent Simon Muchemwa on the line from Harare, Zimbabwe, speaking to Benjamin Mushatama. As Democrats in the U.S. formally launch impeachment proceedings against President Donald Trump, Ukraine has chosen to not comment on the latest developments. The allegation is that Mr. Trump may have used his office to exert pressure on the Ukraine leader in a phone conversation in July to target a political rival, former Vice President Joe Biden, who is now a leading candidate in the 2020 presidential election. Neha Punya reports from Moscow. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky is in New York currently and will be meeting President Trump at the sidelines of the ongoing UNGA summit on Wednesday. That meeting still seems to be going ahead. So far, all Mr. Zelensky has said is that he's hoping to have good ties with the United States and that he will likely invite Donald Trump to visit Kiev. He didn't directly react to the controversy but did tell some members of the press in New York on Tuesday that his conversations with Trump were private and confidential. 
confidential. Last week, Ukraine's foreign minister said that there was no pressure from Donald Trump in that particular phone conversation. Meanwhile, Russia has been closely watching the developments in the U.S. as well, with the chairman of the Russian Federation Council's Foreign Affairs Committee questioning the impeachment proceedings. The chair has said that while this is a domestic issue for the U.S., the process seems to be linked to the 2020 election campaign. He's accused the Democrats of using these proceedings to influence the outcome of the polls in their favor. Neha Punya, Moscow. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Families of victims of the 2009 massacre in Guinea, which saw more than 100 people killed, allegedly by security forces, are still waiting for justice 10 years later. This is according to Human Rights Watch. Uh, Human rights organizations, which include Human Rights Watch, the International Federation for Human Rights, uh, the groups released a video to mark the massacre's 10th anniversary, featuring victims pleading for the trial to go ahead. More than 150 people were killed while demonstrating in a stadium in the capital. Conakry and hundreds more were injured. To discuss this further, we're joined on the line by Elise Kepler, Associate Director of the International Justice Programme at Human Rights Watch. Thank you very much for joining us, Elise. Thank you. Now, it has been 10 years since the massacre. Why has there not been justice for these victims? Thanks for that question. It's important to note that the government has made important strides forward in trying this, the crimes committed during this massacre. Uh, an extensive investigation was conducted. More than 400 victims were interviewed. More than 13 individuals are charged, including the former president and other high-level uh, former and current officials. But we have now gotten to the point where the last remaining step is to schedule the trial, and the victims are waiting for that to happen. Uh, And really, at this point, their hope lies with the president in showing his clear support for this trial to go forward so that, in fact, we will see the momentum uh, move ahead and the trial actually take place. Now, in April 2018, former Justice Minister uh, Sheikh Sako set up a steering committee uh, tasked with the practical organization of the trial. Now, the committee has identified Conakry's Court of Appeal as the location. What do you think should actually happen moving forward? We have now seen a situation where, as I mentioned, the investigation was closed. There were certain appeals to the closing of the investigation. Those have been resolved. 
And the key issue really is announcing this trial will open and set a date. It is true that certain uh, updates to the location and construction matters need to be addressed, but they can and should be addressed efficiently so that this trial can go forward and that Guinea can show that it has the political will to deliver justice for these crimes. As the investigation has gone forward and lagged and stopped and continued, there have always been questions about the extent of commitment to victims to have the chance to see perpetrators held to account. Scheduling the trial would be the most significant indication that that commitment exists and the victims will have the chance to see justice. Now, Elise, there are certain families that are yet to identify bodies of their loved ones. Has the government provided any assistance in that regard? My understanding is that there have been no exhumations, there have been no identifications of uh, believed to be mass graves, um, and it is important that those be identified. That information to contribute to a trial, but can also happen in parallel as an effort to let people know where um, where their dead are buried. We understand there had been some interest by some international uh, entities to assist with that. We don't know where that stands. That should move forward as well. Now, Human Rights Watch released a video to mark the massacre's 10th anniversary featuring victims pleading for the trial to indeed go ahead. What has been the response from the government to this video? Mm. Well, it's just released this morning, so we will potentially have to wait a little bit to see to see the actual response. We do mm-hmm. hope to get a formal response because what is clear is that justice is really important to these victims. They talk about uh, waiting and hoping to have justice done for the crimes, of, of ensuring that there's justice so these kinds of crimes won't happen again, of really feeling like justice is a central element <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. The justice is a central element to moving forward with their lives, and we hope that the president will hear those pleas and hear those calls and take the steps to show that Guinea is committed to rule of law and accountability and have this trial go forward. All right. Well, uh, Elise, uh, thank you very much for joining us on the line. We do hope that uh, all the action that uh, you, you are taking as Human Rights Watch and all the other human rights organizations will actually help to move this forward. Thank you. And uh, we hope you feel better from that cough as well. <laughs> thank you very much. Take care. All Bye-bye. right. That's Elise Kepler, Associate Director of the International Justice Program at Human Rights Watch, on the line from New York in the United States. Thank you to her again for joining us. The time is now 17.26 Central African time. Uh, this is Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi. This is Africa Digest. As World Heart Month draws to an end, culminating with World Heart Day this coming Sunday, the Heart and Stroke Foundation South Africa has underscored the importance of living a healthy lifestyle to prevent the onset of heart disease. Although the incidence of heart disease has steadily declined in high-income countries, the burden on middle- and low-income countries has never been greater. In South Africa, the death rate for heart disease and stroke follows HIV and AIDS. 
More from Bianca Trump, Acting Nutrition Science Manager and Dietitian at the Foundation. Every year, September is dedicated to heart health and preventing heart disease. And it culminates on World Heart Day on the 29th of September. So the theme this year is My Heart, Your Heart and the Hearts of All South Africans. And it's about encouraging South Africans to reevaluate their heart health, to get tested to know their risk of heart disease and to start adopting healthy behaviours to protect their hearts and encouraging family and friends to do the same. With many types of heart disease and heart conditions, Bianca, why did the Heart and Stroke Foundation South Africa choose to educate South Africans about sudden cardiac arrest? The public, we don't know enough about sudden cardiac arrest, and that's why we decided to focus on sudden cardiac arrest during the month of September this year, just to increase public knowledge. What's the difference between a heart attack and sudden cardiac arrest? So a heart attack is when blood flow to the heart is blocked, and sudden cardiac arrest is when the heart malfunctions and suddenly stops beating unexpectedly. So a good way to understand the difference is by knowing that a heart attack is a circulation problem. In other words, the heart doesn't get enough blood and therefore stops pumping, where sudden cardiac arrest is an electrical problem, so the electrical impulse of the heart becomes disordered and the heart becomes beating out of rhythm. That's the difference between the two. Help us understand the risk factors for heart disease. What do they include? The risk factors for heart disease include tobacco smoking. It also includes hypertension if you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol levels, a sedentary lifestyle and unhealthy eating behavior. Are you finding that people are living longer, healthier and productive lives even after a heart attack? Definitely. I think public awareness has driven that people get help sooner, that they also get their risk factors tested at a younger age. So for hypertension and cholesterol, they're also called the silent killers because a lot of the time people aren't aware that they have high blood pressure or high cholesterol levels unless they suffer a stroke or a heart attack. So because people are getting these risk factors tested earlier in life, are more health conscious, we see that people are actually living longer and even after a heart attack, recovering better. So what should you do if someone is suspected to be having sudden cardiac arrest? Okay, so if you suspect that someone is having sudden cardiac arrest, so the symptoms will be someone will lose consciousness, someone might have stopped breathing or their heartbeat will have ceased. So it's important to call emergency services or ask someone else to do so. And then to check if the person is responsive, if the person is breathing and if there is a heartbeat. And if the person is unconscious and not breathing, start doing CPR until medical services do arrive. Finally there, where can listeners go for more information, Bianca? So they can visit our website, it's heartfoundation.co.za. They can also email us at heart at heartfoundation.co.za and they can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And that's Bianca Trump, Acting Nutrition Science Manager and Dietitian at the Heart and Stroke Foundation South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Lidicha. The time is 17.31 Central African time. Let's cross on over very quickly to Anilinsinsi at the news desk for your latest news headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Somalia and Kenya agreed to normalize ties following months of tension over maritime border dispute. 
Cameroonian ex- Cameroonians rather expressed very little optimism that the forthcoming national dialogue will resolve the decade-long Anglophone crisis. And U.S. President Donald, Donald Trump's administration has released details of a telephone conversation last July, which prompted the formal launch of impeachment inquiry against the president. Channel Africa News, I am Onelin Sinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The Global Campaign for Education, GCE, calls on states to withdraw their support from the International Financing Facility for Education, the IWFED, and to focus on strengthening their capacity in the provision of education. The call comes as world leaders convene for the Sustainable Development Goal Summit this week in New York. The GCE is concerned that IWFED is putting fragile states at risk by proposing financing mechanisms which would increase debt and threaten the human right to education for all. For more on this issue, here's GCE's global coordinator, Grant Kasowanjete. So um, what is happening is that, you know, the Education Commission has actually uh, developed a facility that they're calling it uh, um, ISAID, which just means International Financing Facility for Education. This is a facility where they're saying that they will be able to raise additional funds, you know, to support education in the global south and they're looking at an amount of $10 billion. So that's the the permanence of all of this. And um, they will be launching that facility today in New York uh, alongside the SDG summit that is happening. Now, how exactly does uh, the finance mechanism uh, work? And why is it problematic um, in terms of it ensuring education for all? Okay, so basically what will happen is that these funds will be drawn from various banks this is the information that we have, and um, you know it will not be in form of aid as it has been in the past. But basically, states will be allowed to borrow in the name of education that they, they want to put more children in education. They don't have funding, therefore they want to borrow these funds from the banks so that they can finance their own education. But for us now, where the problem is, we are looking at it from a number of angles. The first one is that you know this is a loan. This is a loan facility where you know states will be asked to borrow. And now we all know what happens when you borrow, that money has to be repaid back, their interest. Meaning that, you know, states will be burdened with, you know, now the process of repaying back these funds. And this is what we are saying is this, that, you know, these states do not even have money in the first place to finance their own education. How then do you give them money? How do you loan them funds? And they assume that, you know, they will pay. We know countries that are paying 42 uh, 45% of their national budget, you know, to save these loans. So we feel that, you know, this will just create a lot of debt for these countries. And in the end, it will just create a problem that, in the end, education for all will not be even achieved. So for us, that's the major issue that we're saying that, you know, you cannot move. That is a drastic change from aid into loans. There are a lot of good facilities that are there already that are being managed by the Global Partnership for Education, which is more of an aid process, and that is working. Why do we have to go for loans now? Now, have you, as the GCE, been able to engage anyone um, from the IFED? And if so, what have been the deliberations there? And uh, how has your call been received um, by these uh, states that you're calling to, to withdraw from this? Yes, yeah, so basically, GCE 
is a movement. We are a global movement. So we have got members across the country, most of the countries. And what we're doing is that, you know, we have informed our members to speak to their governments to ensure that, you know, there should be a change in this. And we are also continuing our work, engaging with the Secretariat, which is the Education Commission, to ensure that, you know, there is a change in this. What we're saying is that, you know, we are not against new facilities coming into place so that, you know, they can support education. What we are worried about is the issue that, you know, we should not be in getting countries anymore because we know what will happen. In the end, we'll just be strengthening banks, you know. And something also of concern is that, you know, if banks now are to drive education, like, you know, public education, who has vetted their agendas and their processes around it? What type of education are they talking about? So there's a lot at play here. Hence that, you know, we are raising this awareness, you know, say, states watch out, you know, don't just go because these funds are going to be made available, but also look into the nitty-gritty of what this is all about, and we are sure that, you know, it will not achieve, it will not help to push for the right education for every child in the world. And that was Grant Kasowanjete, Global Coordinator, Global Campaign for Education, on the line talking to Lulu Gabu. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9am with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective The Standard Bank Joy of Jazz will open its doors tomorrow evening. Having been hosted for 35 years to date, this year will unleash talent from all walks of life to celebrate this rich history and lineage of artistry. 13 of the 21 musicians who have been awarded the Standard Bank Young Artist Award will perform together on the Dinaledi stage on opening night in four exciting ensembles with the Standard Bank Youth Jazz Band, the Standard Bank National School Big Band, and the all-awaited Standard Bank All-Star Band. This will comprise of legends such as Mwangile Kumalo, who scooped the first award in 1993, and this year's recipient, Mandlam Langeni. More from Head of Sponsorship at the festival, Desiree Paul. Well, so um, one more sleep um, to um, the gathering of um, South Africa's, Africa's and the world's greatest jazz artists at the Centen Convention Center for this year's edition of the Standard Bank Joy of Jazz. A very exciting time because we have an incredible lineup of young as well as established talent participating in this year's edition. Most important to note is the fact that this is the 22nd edition of the Standard Bank Joy of Jazz. So Team Music Men started this um, festival 22 years ago and Standard Bank has been a sponsor for 21 years of um, those 22 years. So it's a real coming of age of a sponsorship asset. 
something we don't see that often, where you've one brand being a consistent headline sponsor for 21 years uninterrupted. So that's something to celebrate. There are, obviously, the opening night is a very, very big night because that's when we have Winton Mastino and, and his orchestra playing in the opening night, which is tomorrow night. And, of course, the Standard Bank Young Artists All-Star Band, which is made up of what we call the Standard Bank Young Artists Awards alumni. So that itself is very, very exciting. Because let me, yeah, let me so just interrupt you there because I know everyone is just raving about this particular lineup of these alumni. Tell us about mm-hmm. the concept around this. Who are these people that you went and put together and when will they be performing? Well, let me just give you a little bit of context about the Sunnibank um, Young Artist Award program. I call it a program because it's not an award program in its classical sense in that it contains, well, it comprises of categories go beyond jazz. So it is an awards program that we run in partnership with uh, the National Arts Festival where the best of our young talent are identified and selected to be that year's young artist. It can be in various categories which include jazz, it includes music, there's visual art as well. Dance is another category and on some years if there is notable work, the film genre is included in the festival. So it's quite an achievement and a fulfillment and a a celebration of what is in essence a 35-year-old program that has seen more than 160 South African artists be awarded uh, this honor. So um, in this year's edition, we're going to have quite a few of um, our alumni. And just to give you an indication of the caliber of person that actually wins this award in the jazz category, we're going to have the likes of Gloria Bosman, of course, Unduduzo Makatini um, is also part of that. There's Concord and Gabinde as well, uh, Melanie Schwartz, I could go on. But this just gives you an idea of how accomplished the members of the Standard Bank Young Artist Award alumni are. And it's going to be a, or the first time they're going to collaborate in such a manner. So that is the ultimate excitement um, for us. And they will be at the Dinaledi Stadium, uh, rather, Dinaledi Stage um, tomorrow night. And as the festival, you must be proud that you awarded these alumni that will be performing and they have had a a long, long stay in the music industry. They've gone and changed and impacted the music industry in South Africa and even globally. Indeed we are. I mean, I think it's a testimony of, you know, the, those who had the foresight to establish the Sunnabank Young Artist Awards program 35 years ago. What we are now seeing is it's testimony of the value of the program and it is also a testimony of the talent that comprises the Sana Benkian Artist Awards uh, alumni. Not only are they a force to be reckoned with in their individual capacity, but they have also impacted jazz beyond South African borders. I mean, if I take an example of uh, Kassidin Naidu, who um, will also be joining this lineup, he is accomplished, he's been performing internationally and he's coming back to South Africa to share with us his talent. There are many others like him. I mean, you look at a Concord Gabinde for an example. Not only is he a musician, but he's a teacher. 
He is a contributor to preserving the genre, to nurturing Thailand. So there are so many different facets that the Son of Bank Young Artist alumni bring to the program and to the alumni program. There's the teaching, there's the preservation, and of course there's the, the creation and um, performance of incredible music. Tell us about the master classes that you have been running ahead of the festival that has also had uh, social media and you know, aspiring music um, artists uh, being part of the festival and just raving about the impact that this master class will have on their music career. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that because it was really exciting. So the master class that was held yesterday was with the Standard Bank National School's big band, who were um, in workshop along with other young aspirant musicians and hosted by the Grammy Award-winning Winton Marcellus. So yesterday was an absolute treat, but it is the, the culmination of a lot of effort that started way literally a year ago with auditions for the, the Standard Bank National Schools Youth Band. The young people that made up the band, all high school learners, um, got to be part of the program, having gone through a week-long um, coaching and mentoring session during their stay at the National Arts Festival in July. They came together a few days ago to prepare to be part of that exciting experience. I think it's one of those once-in-a-lifetime experiences that, you you know, as a young artist, you, you get to have, to be able to be mentored, lectured, guided by a Winton Marsalis. It doesn't get better than that. And I think it was a moment of pride for us at Standard Bank to have been party to this experience and to continue to contribute to the development and the sustainability of jazz, jazz as a genre in South Africa and to be able to afford our young artists a chance to hone their craft in the company and under the tutelage of the world's great. And that is Desiree Boy, Head of Sponsorship at the Standard Bank Joy of Jazz, on the line talking to Tutong Ngubeni. It's time for us to cross on over to the money desk. Here's Tracy Boomgaard with your latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. The Eswatini government has confirmed that funds to cover the cost-living adjustment demanded by civil servants were not available in the government coffers. However, last week, government made an offer of 3%, which could be available in 2020. Labor unions have threatened to strike. Eswatini government spokesperson Percy Simulani says the offer has been rejected by the labor unions and government has since taken away its offer from the table and negotiations have deadlocked. Zambia's energy regulator has hiked the pump price of fuel, rising concerns of negative economic performance of the southern African country. The energy hikes by the Energy Regulation Board have not just worried key stakeholders such as manufacturers, but the nation at large. Our Zambian correspondent Arthur Davis Corpo has the details. Announcing the 2.5% pump price increase, ERB Board Chairman Raymond Ipondo said from January 2019 to date, the price of crude oil on the international market has increased by 8.2%, while during the same period, 
local currency, the kwacha, has depreciated 10%, forcing the country to up its commodity price. Zambians are yet to receive another wallet milking act, as a country plans to hike electricity tariffs. The Congress of South African Trade Unions, or COSATU's General Secretary, Becky Nchalichali, has challenged the country's banking sector to consider the plight of the thousands of employees who face retrenchments within the sector. A total shutdown is scheduled for this coming Friday by the more than 40,000 members of the union SASBO. He says the banking sector continues to make money, so there's no reason for people to be retrenched when unemployment is at its highest. The banks are not in a financial crisis. They are still making a lot of profit. They are replacing people with, uh, with machines. There has to be something that needs to be done in that direction. You can't, they can't have both ways that they are going to replace people. They are not paying people enough and they are not contributing to the economy. So they, are not, they should stop being crying babies. They are not paying high cooperative tax. Central Bank of Nigeria Governor Godwin Emefile has ruled out a cut in interest rates until inflation drops to 9%. He added that he is hopeful that this will happen by 2020. The central bank held the monetary policy rate at 13.5% last week for the third straight meeting after surprising the market in March with the first cut since 2015. While inflation has slowed from a high of 18.7% in January 2011, rather 2017, to 11% in August this year, it's been outside the target band of 6-9% for more than four years. The Botswana government has granted farmers a temporary window to export live cattle for slaughter. This includes farmers in the Ngamiland region who had to sell their livestock when foot and mouth disease hit the area. The temporary window will be reviewed in March 2020. The South African Red Meat Producers Organization has expressed its concern over the move, saying it will put South African farmers under immense financial pressure, something the Botswana government has disregarded, saying the move was openly agreed to by the South African government. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.60 Nigerian Naira, 10.79 Botswana Pula, at 102.72 Kenyan Shilling and at 13.06 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.16 Brazilian Hale, 63.79 Russian Ruble, 70.69 Indian Rupee, 7.11 Chinese Yuan and at 14.87 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 80 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,529 and platinum at $952 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $62.75 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. And now it's time for your sport. Here is Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara. A very good afternoon, sport fans. Starting off with rugby news. 
Uruguay delivered the first upset of the Rugby World Cup with a stunning 30-27 victory over an era-prone Fiji in a pool D match at the Kamaishi Recovery Memorial Stadium today. The South Americans, mostly amateurs, led 21-12 at halftime on the back of coveted tries from scrum half Santiago Arata, number 8 Emmanuel Diana and center Juan Manuel Kett, as well as penalty from Felipe Pechesi. Fly half of Bechesi kicked two more penalties in the second half to keep the scoreboard ticking over as the Fijians fought to get back in the game and Los Terros held on to claim their third victory in 12 World Cup matches. The wins leaves the Fiji's hopes of reaching the World Cup quarterfinals for the first time since 2007 in Tetas after they also lost their opening match to Australia on Saturday. In the meantime, Wallabies utility back Ketley Bill says Wales had got stronger on the defence ahead of the crunch Puldy match against Wales this weekend. With both sides having opened their campaigns with victories, Sunday's match in Tokyo should decide which of them tops the pool and gets an easier run through the knockout stage. As a player, you, you always look forward to playing Wales. Um, I think we, as, as nations, we, we bring the best out of each other. Um, they're always great contest, uh, and I think we, we, we've got a lot of respect for, for each other as well. So, but I feel like their defence has gone up another level, and I think over the tournament, tournament all teams are focusing on their defence. So it's going to be a, a little bit harder to crack, and so then places more importance on holding onto a ball, building pressure that way, uh, and uh, hopefully matching them uh, with fitness. Uh, it's always going to go down to the wire. We know that, um, and we're prepared for that. Australia worked out in the gym on the day winger Rhys Hodge was due to face a judicial panel over a dangerous tackle he carried out in the Wallabies opening World Cup match against Fiji. Assistant coach Nathan Sharp told the reporters they would be prepared to face Wales at the weekend, whatever the outcome. Yeah, um, quite significant. Um, and obviously, they've uh, <clears throat> got themselves to, uh, during the year, the number one in the world, so they're certainly going to present a lot of different options for us. Um, They've got a very consistent team that they've been picking for a long period of time, so the threats are uh, certainly certainly there across the park. Oh, I, as I said, we're, we're certainly focused on letting the process go about. Um, you'd be crazy um, as a management not to not to you know manage both ways. So whether he's going to be there, whether he's not, we'll be we'll be we'll be, we'll be ready to go. Even the most optimistic U.S. rugby fan would struggle to sound a bit about their chances of beating England at the World Cup tomorrow. But Eagles coach Gary Gold says that being severe underdogs will allow his team to perform without pressure. Cape Town native Gold, who took the helm at the USA Rugby in 2018, is under no illusions about the size of the task facing his team in Kobe and said he hoped his players would emerge from the game with credibility. There's one or two things that we'll try tomorrow, you know, and hopefully, you know, that you know, that may be something that England haven't seen before. We'll see if we can get it going. But um, we're just playing a really balanced team, you know, and it doesn't really, it, it didn't really bother me who they did or didn't pick because it's, <laughs> it's coming in waves. I mean, if, it's, uh, if, if it wasn't the team that played against Tonga, which was monstrously physical and powerful, then it's the team that they've picked at the moment, which is going to be very, very fast, you know. And, uh... 
And finally, with athletics news, American sprinter Christian Coleman has reassured the fans that he was running clean as he made his final preparations for the IAAF World Championships. Coleman was the subject of an investigation by the United States Anti-Doping Agency and aware about the rules after he missed three doping tests. I don't, you know, take any performance hands and drugs. I don't take anything legal or illegal. Like, I just, you know, work hard and my God-given talent and abilities and just, you know, continue to do that. Um, but that is, you know, my mistake. I'll continue to, you know, remember to update the app um, anytime I make a move or anything like that. But as far as, like, people, you know, taking that headline and then, like, jumping to a conclusion of, you know, oh, he has to be doing something. I mean, I think people, like, think that anyway just because, like, the uh, history of, like, of U.S. sprinting, uh, which I've learned more about like over the past month, because that's not even thing that I like focus on or anything like that. But um, so people just assume and like make up storylines, anyways. But then when you have something, a situation like that, I can understand why people would think that. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Nedo Neto Chamani. This is Africa Digest. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. We're back again at 1900 hours Central African time and will be available online on www.channelafrica.co.za as well as on the DSTV Audio Bouquet Channel 802. But should you have any comments for us in the meantime, you can send them through to info at channelafrica.co.za.